0: You're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Today on Something You Should Know, what you may not know about the oxygen mask that falls from the ceiling on an airplane in the event of an emergency. Then, the fascinating and sometimes strange things that cause us to spend money.
1: You can actually see that people's spending is heavily influenced by what their siblings are doing. If you try to see, for example, when someone's going to buy a new car or buy a new house, one of the predictors of someone doing that is just the fact that one of their siblings just did it.
0: Also, what's the one characteristic that makes a great password? And why, if you ever feel guilty indulging in pleasure, don't.
2: Pleasure is not a luxury. Our ability to experience pleasure is necessary for a good functioning emotional brain. Nature wired us to pursue things that are pleasurable that we need.
0: All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you... Something You Should Know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, I hope you are ready for another fun, fascinating, fact-filled episode of Something You Should Know, because I have one right here, ready to go. And we start today with flying. Now, whenever you fly, the flight always begins with a safety presentation. And during that presentation, they tell passengers that in an emergency, oxygen masks will fall from the ceiling. You should put them on and breathe normally. But then they always tack on the end of that, the fact that the oxygen mask may not inflate, but that it's still working. Well, why don't they know whether or not it's going to inflate? And why do you have to, why do you have to tug on it to get it to work? Well, actually, there are a few things about the airplane oxygen masks that you should be aware of. First of all, there there really isn't all that much oxygen. There's only enough oxygen to last for several minutes. The masks are only meant to keep passengers supplied with oxygen until the pilot is able to bring the plane down to less than 10,000 feet, where passengers will be able to breathe more easily. Tugging on the mask is what kickstarts the process and allows the oxygen to flow through. But that isn't what makes the bag inflate. The size of the bag is completely reliant on the rate at which the passenger is breathing. Heavy breathers will have thinner bags, while people who breathe less will see their bags inflate more. And that is something you should know. <music> I bet there have been times in your life when you have bought something and later regretted it. Or I bet there have been times in your life when you didn't buy something and later wish you had. People don't always make smart choices with their money. Why is that? Why is money such a hard thing to manage and hard to talk about and hard to really understand? Michael Norton is a professor of business administration at the Harvard Business School And he's author of the book, Happy Money, The Science of Smarter Spending. And he's about to help you better understand your complicated relationship with money. Hi, Michael. Thank you for having me. So what made you take a look at this? Why is is how people spend their money so interesting to you? I think uh,
1: it's because uh, people's behavior is so crazy around their money. The decisions we all make you know we look back and we say why did i buy that why didn't i buy that why am i not saving enough money is very emotional so we can get carried away with our spending as a psychologist who studies decision making money is one of those things that we have in our lives that is really important for all sorts of reasons but our decision making often gets a little off kilter and i try in my research to understand what's going on why do we make the decisions that we do
0: well i imagine it's Different person to person and decision to decision, but it, in broad strokes, wh- wh- why is it so much trouble? Why is it so hard? Why do we say things like, why didn't I buy that? Or why did I buy that? What, is there just a, a general sense as to the, what the why is?
1: I think there's so there's two big things that I think we get wrong. One is uh, we believe that more money will make us happier. So we have a very strong theory that, and we can do surveys, if we ask people how much more money would you need to be a perfect 10 in happiness, everyone will say two to three times more. And it, it's true that having more money you know, doesn't make you unhappy in general, but it doesn't solve our problems. So first off, the belief that just getting more money will make us happy is, isn't really true. And then the second big mistake we make, and this is one that's for, for everyone, I think, uh, what we do with the money, we don't always get right. And in particular, people seem to think that if they just buy more stuff, it'll be great. So if I just get a new TV or new shoes or new pants or a new car or a new house, whatever it might be, that stuff will make me happy, really nice stuff. And that's also really not true. So we have, we're trying to earn more money because we think it'll make us happy, and that's not exactly right. And then when we have money and we spend it, we're buying a bunch of stuff for ourselves, and that doesn't seem to be paying off either. We're doing some things right, but those are two big categories that we're kind of missing the mark.
0: But what's interesting is that, okay, so people buy stuff because they think that it'll make them happier, and you say, well, no, it really doesn't, and yet, and yet it doesn't stop people from doing it again the next time.
1: Yeah, I, I think of it a little bit as trying to eat healthy uh, or exercise, you know, that we all know now that eating pizza all day, every day is not good for us. And we can all say today, I'm definitely not going to eat pizza tomorrow because that's easy, because it's not tomorrow yet. <laughs> and it's a little bit the same with buying stuff. You can say to yourself, hey, you know what, buying the, you know, 10th pair of shoes or the 10th the device is not going to make me happy. But when it's in front of you, just like when the pizza's in front of you, it's all over. There's no way we can resist because it's new and it's shiny and it's really exciting. And in the moment, it actually does feel great. So when we buy a new thing, we really are happy about it, just like when we eat pizza, we really are happy about it. But what the data show is that in the longer term, buying the stuff doesn't seem to pay off. So we're a little bit like pizza, like longer term, not so good for us. It's hard for us to go longer term because in the moment pizza and new stuff is always better than not.
0: Well, and so, uh, you know, I've heard the, the conversation about, you know, is it better to spend your money on experiences or things? And, and there's a lot of talk about how experiences are more fulfilling and more rewarding, but, but, but don't you, th- well, do you agree?
1: Absolutely true. So in, in general, and by sometimes people think experiences, they're thinking, you know, well, yeah, vacation's great, but I can't afford to go on vacation all the time because I'm a person. But experiences can be little things, too. So instead of buying something for, you know, $20 for yourself, taking someone out for dinner, that's an experience, right? So in little ways, experiences can also make us better than stuff.
0: When it's time to make a decision, though, between do we buy the couch or do we go on vacation, and yes, you would say, well, the experience is a better use of your money because you have time to look forward to it and then after it's over you can look back on the memories and isn't that great whereas a couch is just a couch but if you really need a couch and you don't buy it well then you've got that nagging at you
1: that can definitely be the case and in fact thinking about the issue of you know does, does earning more money or having more income make us happier it's, it's not a magical solution by any means but particularly for people who are struggling to make ends meet, you know, who are actually worried about the roof over their head, their additional income does seem to be associated with happiness. So when money is solving problems for us, then it's a really good use, actually, of that money. So if you actually really needed a couch, it's not a bad idea to buy that couch. The mistake that people make is, let's get a new couch every three months, (laughs) or let's get 10 new couches, because those will be somehow better that's where we start to get the decisions a little bit more wrong
0: isn't there something almost universally good about just having money just in the bank not you're not buying stuff with it you just know it's there isn't that for most people pretty rewarding and a nice thing
1: it it is um but it's not super exciting is the problem so if we were all smart, we should, we should absolutely be saving you know, way more for retirement and living very simply right now. That would be economically a fantastic idea. But then we'd be kind of sitting in our house staring at the wall. So we, part of the reason that we earn money is because we want to do stuff with it. I don't mean buy stuff. I mean literally do stuff. And there, we know that people are going to use their money who do some things, they'll keep some of it in the bank, which we love, and it's very good for you, as you said. But given that people are definitely going to spend some of it, then we try to say, given that, what can we help people do to spend it in a way that really pays off in happiness? And they're not really just throwing that money away, because if they're just throwing it away, I really wish you had saved it. But if you're spending it on something that's really meaningful and really important for you or for your family, it might still be you know, better to have saved it, but in terms of living your life, you know, in line with your values, well, then we might say, well, at least I feel better about how he spent that money. At least he didn't buy himself his fifth pair of something.
0: I don't know if you studied this or not, but I'm wondering at the end of life, when you look back, is it more satisfying to look back at a life that you spent all your money and everybody had a lot of fun, but there's nothing left? or that you were more prudent and you saved money to leave to the, the next generation, because, you know, that's what responsible people do.
1: So if you think about, I mean, family vacations are, are a fantastic example. So I'm one of five uh, children, so family vacation was like a sitcom. Basically, we didn't always go particularly well, and for people who have kids, you know, it can get expensive fast. Now, would it have been great in a, in a sense to have invested all of that money over the years and then there's an inheritance? Maybe. But those vacations that we took, even though they didn't always go perfectly well, those are our strongest memories of our family. And, and so there's, there's a sense in which that using money to buy these kinds of experiences, even when they're a little bit bumpy along the way, as they nearly always are, it still can be a better use in terms of, you know, did I live a life consistent with my values? Yes, we'd also love to provide for people after we're gone, but if that's all we do our whole life, again, if we sit in a room and never see our family because we're busy earning money, at the end of life, they might be happy because we gave them a bunch of money, but they would have missed having a parent, and we would have missed having a family. So there's a balance, I think, in the middle that some people get kind of right, but a lot of us get a little bit confused along the way.
0: The thing we spoke of at the beginning about how people buy things or don't buy things, and then wonder why did I or why didn't I so it's so is it good advice to when you're thinking about buying something that's relatively expensive, sit on it for a while? For sure, I, I, and it's truly
1: been a small thing, so if you're any time actually you're you, you find yourself reaching for your wallet, or more commonly now, you know, reaching for your phone or credit card, or you could be online, you know, about to press purchase or confirm or whatever the button says, taking a beat and just thinking, is this kind of like pizza? You know, is this something that is going to feel great to buy, and then for a day I'm going to love it, and then nothing? Or is this something that actually really might be meaningful? And it's hard to know sometimes, but sometimes it's not. And so, for example, when we ask people about um, the coffee how much coffee they drink, people say, well, you know, I go to Starbucks every morning or Dunkin' or whatever, and I get a cup. You know, I get a thing of coffee every day. And we say, you know, do you get it every day? And they say, yes. And we say, we can do the math, basically. And we say, do you know you're spending $1,000 a year on coffee? (laughs) And people say, oh, I didn't realize that. We say, is that how much of your income you'd like to spend on coffee? And people say, of course not. That's way too much. And we say, could you go to a coffee every other day? And they say, sure. And now suddenly they have income that they were kind of buying this thing over and over again without thinking about it, and they have this new income that they can do something with. They could save it, which would be great, or at least they can use it in a way that's not just their 5,000th coffee of the year, but maybe it's something that's a little bit more meaningful.
0: When people do that, when they, for example, cut back on their coffee 50% of the time, and so now they're saving $500 a year, isn't it human nature to kind of always have that in the back of your head that, oh, I'm saving $500 so I can spend it on something else. And so, yeah, you're saving $500 on coffee, but you're probably spending that savings somewhere else and so it all evens out.
1: This is a big problem that that we do is that sometimes even when we make the right financial decisions in at time one, well, time two is another day, and we not have the willpower to do the right thing yesterday, but today not so much, and then I buy the silly thing as well. You're also right, by the way, that, that not all people, but, but many people get uh, a lot of happiness out of getting a deal. So the, the feeling that you behaved you know, financially prudently, and everyone knows people who are like this, can be a really powerful motivator to behave well. However, even there, for example, there's research that shows you know, people who care about deals and saving money They'll do the classic thing, which is, you know, if they're interested in getting cheaper gas, you know, they'll drive 50 miles, <laughs> <cheaper> <laughs> gas, and then drive 50 miles home to save, you know, 22 cents. Now, not only is it silly financially, but they just wasted an hour in a car instead of being with their family or doing something they love. So sometimes even when we're doing, the, in a sense, the right thing financially, we're still trading off something that might be more valuable, like, for example, our time doing things we really like
0: we are talking about your money and how you spend it and we're talking with Michael Norton he's a professor of business administration at the Harvard Business School and he's author of the book happy money the science of smarter spending a shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples you see for as long as I can remember I have had to deal with seasonal allergies ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. So, Michael, there, there is this whole mentality about the sale, getting the deal, that is so attractive to a lot of people that, yeah, we don't really need this, but, but look how cheap it is. Look, look at how inexpensive. You would be an idiot not to buy it.
1: Right, you'd be I guess You said I'd be an idiot. That's that's exactly what I'm in the marketing group here at Harvard Business School. That's exactly what not so nice marketers want you to feel, even if it's something that you, you really don't need. Is how what kind of a person wouldn't buy this when it's so cheap? This happens often in big box retailers. You know, if you if you have anyone in your family or you're the person who comes home with six thousand rolls of toilet paper because because you could buy them, you know, way cheaper per unit. And your family says, we don't need 6,000 rolls of, or, you know, you have pasta for 25 years because it was cheaper. (laughs) When you buy it, you're thinking, I am smart, right? I mean, this is way cheaper pasta than I could get anywhere else. But was it really that smart of a purchase? Not probably so much when you have to go home and face your family and think you're an idiot.
0: Right. Because where are you going to put it? And it's probably not going to last that long. Exactly. So these are all good examples of why money is so difficult, because... Uh, seemingly reasonable people will do such unreasonable things for for strange reasons.
1: You know, another one that that came to mind, it's related. It's usually the same kinds of people who drive 50 miles to get cheaper gas. These are people who, um, if they buy something, no matter what, they'll stay or finish it. So they'll go to a movie that they hate. But in order to, quote-unquote, get their money's worth, (laughs) they'll sit and watch the movie that they hate until the very end, or they buy a book and they don't like the book at all, but in order to get their money's worth, they finish the entire book. Now, there's something called sunk cost, which people are familiar with, which is, it's a sunk cost, right? You've spent the money. What are you possibly going to get back by doing something you hate after you've already spent the money? But it feels good to us when we're doing it, right? I got my money's worth, but from this other perspective, it's a sunk cost. You've got to just walk out of the movie because you're not going to be any happier watching a terrible movie than you would be just leaving and talking to a friend.
0: I, well, and sometimes you do it, you keep reading or you keep watching because you keep hoping it's going to get better, and but it doesn't. True. <laughs> That's right. It never does, or almost never does. <laughs> Don't you think we spend a lot of money trying to impress other people? It's huge. I think uh,
1: you can actually see that, that people's... Um, spending is heavily influenced by what their siblings are doing. So if you look, if you try to see, for example, when someone's going to buy a new car or buy a new house, one of the predictors of someone doing that is just the fact that one of their siblings just did it. So you can see, you know, there's a random thing when we all buy cars and things like that, but a little more uh, than you'd expect by chance. As soon as my brother or sister upgrades, I got to do it as well and you see it with your siblings and you see it with your neighbors so the closer a neighbor is to you that renovates for example or gets a new car the more likely I am now to engage- to do that this year instead of waiting for another year so we're really and we're often not even aware of it you know we're not saying i'm going to beat them it just feels like it's time to get a new car <laughs> And so these are huge purchases that we're making and they are definitely influenced by the notion of keeping up with the joneses or ideally Keeping up and then going just one little degree further, so that I'm ahead. The other place this comes up is, you know, you you spend a year researching the 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 very best flat screen TV with all everything, and then you you finally put it up. It's a mile long in your house, and then the next day your neighbor gets one that's slightly better, and now yours is garbage (laughs) immediately (laughs) because it's slightly better. Mine, even though I could have enjoyed watching so many things on mine, the fact that I know someone who has one that's slightly better now, I hate my TV it's completely irrational just like not buying a camaro but it's very hard emotionally to let go of it
0: i guess that there is comfort in numbers it's it's good to know that everybody else does this too because i, I don't don't suppose there's any real cure for this it's it's human nature right
1: it, it it's very difficult to you know there's there's world religions that stress the idea of you know stop trying to compare yourself to other people that's not the route to and I know some people who are very enlightened who are able to do that. I'm not one of them. <laughs> I don't know many people who are because you're right. It is built into us to look around and see how well we're doing compared to other people. Even with things like height, you know, we, we look around a little bit sometimes to see where we rank with height. It's not so different than where we rank with our car or our income or anything else that we're counting up.
0: Lastly, talk about this idea that the way payment apps affect your relationships.
1: So this is some interesting research we've been doing um, recently with um, Tammy Kim, who's at the University of Virginia. Uh, first off, had to explain to me what payment apps are because I don't really use uh, apps very much. So there are, now there's many of them. Where, and they're a great idea, I should say, where, for example, roommates uh, who you know, have to split the rent In my world, when I had roommates, somebody would write a check to the landlord, and then everyone would either write them a check for their amount or cash. It was very complicated, very pain. Every month it was kind of a pain. Payment apps, just click a button, and instantly all of our money goes to the place, and we're all done. Out for dinner as well, splitting the bill. It's like, what did you order? What did I order? Who's going to use a card? Who has cash? Again, a whole problem. Payment apps automatically split the bill among the four of us. We can all go home. So efficiency wise, fantastic. I mean there's no doubt that these are fantastic. But from a social perspective, they're a little bit weird because if we're always always right down to the cent with what we're doing. So if you and I had dinner and it was, you know, twenty dollars and two cents and each of us made sure that we put in that penny, you know, ten oh one. Like I wouldn't even let you spot me a penny it kind of suggests that we're not really friends because I don't even trust you (laughs) with a penny. And now it feels more like a bank or something like that where we're right, literally the phrase nickel and diming, we're right down on that all the time in our relationships. And a lot of relationships are about, hey, I'll get this this time. You'll get me next time. Or even just let me treat everyone this time. Payment apps accidentally in a way make us all petty. We're all now down to the penny in all of our relationships with everybody. And what Tammy shows in the research is that we don't like people who are that way. And so when people use payment apps that do this automatically, we kind of start to think that maybe they're a jerk. We start to feel like we're not really that close.
0: Well, but we're a jerk, too.
1: Right. But luckily, my behavior, I'm never a jerk. It's just if you do the exact same thing, (laughs) you're a jerk.
0: (laughs) Right, right. Isn't that interesting that, that, that it actually has that effect on people? Because you wouldn't think so. You would think, as you described, that it, it is such a convenient way to split the check that, that it's all good. There's no bad part to it. Exactly. And, I mean, this is what we thought, you know, when credit cards were introduced, it's all
1: good, right? Because now we don't have to have cash and it's more efficient and everything. And then credit cards have this problem where because they're not linked to cash, well, now we overspend on them. Because they're so efficient and easy to use, they mess up our psychology a little bit, and we start to feel like things are free, and we're swiping everywhere we go. So very often when technology changes our interaction with money, it changes other things in our lives as well, for for better and for worse, but definitely different. And that's why we're always, when we study financial decision-making, having to keep up with technology to make sure we understand in people's everyday lives what are they experiencing what products are they using and how is that
0: changing their behavior so if w- when the dust all settles i mean is is there any kind of blanket you know advice that applies to pretty much everybody when it comes to making financial decisions that will help you make better ones or is it just it is what it is
1: i would say so we have encouraged people to do this actually and it's very easy to do and, and i'll I'll warn anyone who does it it can be very painful Your credit card statement that comes every month, many people actually don't look at the purchases at all, Uh, believe it or not. They just pay the bill and send it off. Some people look at the purchases, but more sort of for accuracy. You know, let me look at the big ones and make sure that's something I bought. What we encourage people to do actually is, and, and you can do it online, but printing it out actually is pretty helpful. Print out your next credit card statement and actually go through the purchases and think about them just for a sec. And you can ask yourself a bunch of questions. One is, do I even remember that? (laughs) You know, I I bought that thing. I forgot. Well, that probably wasn't something really meaningful. And you can go all the way down the list to think about, was that a good purchase or not? I'm not sure. And you can bucket them. You can start to say, well, how much did I spend on stuff for myself last month? And then you can start to say, wow, 50% of everything I bought was stuff for myself. Is that really the kind of spending that I want to engage in because of my values or because of what's important to me. And if not, you can say, next month, let's do 40. And then after next month, you can print it out again and see how well you did. So it's painful because it shows you who you are and me too and all the dumb things we do with our money. But it can be really useful and doesn't take much time to get you to think about your priorities for what you're doing with your money. And if you feel like it, start to make some small changes.
0: Which is probably very telling if if you can stand the pain of doing it. Uh, Michael Norton has been my guest. He is a professor of business administration at Harvard Business School, and his book is Happy Money, The Science of Smarter Spending. There's a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks, Michael. Perfect. Thanks, Mike. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. What could be bad about pleasure? Pleasure's good. Yet, it seems a lot of us have this weird relationship with pleasure, that somehow pleasure is bad. I mean, how many people don't take a vacation? I bet you thought at some time in your life that it would be great to go to a nice restaurant or get a massage or something, but you didn't because you felt guilty or thought if you did it, you would feel guilty. Well, it turns out that pleasure is not just a luxury. It isn't the dessert after the meal. Pleasure is... Absolutely necessary. Dr. Nan Wise has been helping people to indulge in pleasure and feel good about it. And she's about to help you, too. Nan is a psychotherapist and author of the book, Why Good Sex Matters. But our conversation's not about sex. It's about all human pleasure and its role in your life. Hi, Nan. Thanks for being here.
2: And thank you so much for having me.
0: So this idea that pleasure for its own sake is somehow bad and that you're, uh, I don't, you're a more virtuous person if you deny yourself pleasure, that makes you a better person. W- where did that come from?
2: Well, we are a nation that was settled by Puritans and Protestants, and there's a real difficulty with people implicitly having these attitudes that somehow pleasure is bad. But pleasure gets a bad rap, and what we need to do is accomplish and work and do and all of this other stuff. And I think what's happened is that over time, because of the way that we're living, we are less and less able to experience the pleasures that I call healthy hedonism, the things that are good for us, good food, good company, good connection, and intimacy across the board in our lives is missing as we get so distracted by the ferocious pace of life and it actually derails the wired in emotional brain
0: well, and it seems as if there is this underlying message that yes, if you want to have pleasure, it only comes after its dessert comes after dinner after you eat your broccoli that you can go on vacation after you've finished this work that. It's a reward that comes and you've got to earn it rather than being something that you should do just because you should do it.
2: And that's a big piece of the whole puzzle, which is pleasure has a bad rap. And pleasure is not a luxury. Our ability to experience pleasure is necessary for a good functioning emotional brain. Nature is not. Stupid nature wired us to pursue things that that are pleasurable that we need, such as food, connection with other people, intimacy, air, safety, all of that. And generally, that works pretty good, except if we're pursuing food and it's a bag of Doritos, it tastes good, but it's not good for us. So we've become derailed and we are, for example, looking for social connection and we spend hours on social media getting our emotional systems all tweaked by dopamine, which makes us crave and want, but it's not satisfying. And what we really need is contact with other people. We need to be in the room with people. We need to be connected emotionally, intimately. We Kids need to play, rough-and-tumble play in the playground, not to be plugged into devices. And so it's really important that we understand that. So the lack of being able to experience pleasure is a symptom of anxiety, depression, and stress, as well as a contributor. It's not, Pleasure is not a luxury. It's a necessity for, for us to learn to have healthy hedonism, to eat food that's good for us. To, to play in ways that are good for us, to connect with people in a way that's satisfying.
0: I'm hearing what I think people could perceive as a bit of a mixed message here, because you're saying, you know, you should have pleasure, eat food that's good for you. Well, that that is the opposite of what some people think would be pleasurable food, is food that is good for you. Pleasure would be that greasy, juicy Burrito <laughs> it, it, not food that's good for me and and when you say, well we're, we're spending too much time on social media, m- many people think you know going on Facebook is pleasurable, so I can see where people would hear this as a mixed message, and so would you please rectify that?
2: That's a great point, so we need to make a distinction between what I would call healthy hedonism, things that feel good and are good for you versus Things that we do that might feel pleasurable but have the price tag of keeping us, for example, eating, 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 social, social, social media, they're not satisfying. So it's not a value judgment on my part, but it's really looking at why we get derailed into seeking things in a way that's unhealthy. For example, being out of balance with spending too much time on social media or not being able to regulate our emotions enough to regulate our body weight. You know, all things in moderation, as my dad would say, including moderation. But if you look at how often we are seeking things that are, we experience as pleasurable but not satisfying That's a sign of our emotional systems being out of balance.
0: So tell me how to make that distinction. How How do I look at something and decide, well, this is good pleasure or this is bad pleasure?
2: That's a great question. And I think the answer more and more is about really paying attention to our bodies, the sensations in our bodies. And when I work with clients, a lot of the time, no matter what they've come in for, whether it's a a problem with mood or a sexual dysfunction, and I say, what's going on in your body? And they look at me like I'm crazy. People are so in their heads that they're not really paying attention to the cues that the body gives you. If you eat food and you're really paying attention to your body, and you're noticing the sensations as you're eating, you're more likely to stop eating before you have overeaten. You also will be more attuned to when you eat or when you, for example, um, move your body. The things that feel good are going to be registered if you pay attention to your body in a much more nuanced and consistent way.
0: As we discussed, though, pleasure is often the reward. Finish your homework, you can watch TV. Eat your dinner, you can have dessert. That we first have to earn it. And so if we don't do that, if you're suggesting that we have pleasure just for the sake of having pleasure, well, how do you insert it into your life when you're used to inserting it into your life as the reward for work?
2: Well, one of the things that we really need to look at is how we can become more present to each moment and more mindful of what we're doing. And if we do that, we can actually experience pleasure all throughout the day. We can experience pleasure in being engaged in our work. I'm having a great time talking to you right now. This is fun for me. I'm here, I'm in it. When we're in the moment and we're not so distracted, and this is one of the very bad things about what they call continuous partial attention, you're looking at your phone, you've got your computer, your your attention is spread all over the place. And it's even hard sometimes, even if we're not distracted with a phone or a computer, to take our minds that go off in all sorts of different directions, and believe me, I have a mind like that. My whole family (laughs) suffers from anxiety. So I needed to learn how to teach what I myself need to know, how to be able to harness attention, and learn how to enjoy and savor everyday life and not have to wait to dessert to have fun.
0: So give me an example.
2: Well, when you are... Going through your day, and you start to pay attention to, okay, what's on my mind? What's in my emotional weather? Okay, how am I feeling in this moment? I'm thinking about blah, blah, blah. I'm feeling a way. I might be, you know, feeling a little depressed or a little excited or a little anxious. And what's going on in my body? And then you notice the sensations in your body. What you've done is essentially. Become mindful, more of your own experience. And then what you can do is whatever you're doing, whether you're writing a story or whether you're interviewing somebody or whether you're going to work and selling things in the store, you can take your mind from the wandering, because that's what minds do. You can bring it to the moment. And then you can facilitate some of the things that actually do give us pleasure, being present, connecting with people, even small conversations with people during the course of the day with strangers has been shown to improve our mood and make us feel better. So it's really about harnessing attention to be more where you are and see the possibilities for play and fun, even in your work.
0: How do we know this is, this is so? How do we know, I mean, this sounds great that we should be, but, but what's, what's the evidence that the, the payoff is there?
2: Well, when you're talking about what's effective for giving people more joy and more pleasure... There have been studies that have been done. For example, Marty Marty Seligman, who was the past president of the American Psychological Association, um, he has a lot of studies that are about what gives people joy, what gives people pleasure. One of the things that's been shown is when people pay good attention, when they're present and they become able to find things that engage them and things that give them meaning but what we do know is the most important thing is being present people can be basically much happier being present driving home in traffic when they're <laughs> paying attention to that than when their mind wanders
0: so let's talk about sex for a moment because it is in some ways you know the ultimate Physical pleasure, and yet it is also very taboo. Do you see a a change? Is it becoming less taboo? Is uh, sexuality not so naughty anymore?
2: When you look at it, I say we kind of live in a lewd, prude nation. So we have, like, we talk about sex, we're obsessed about sex, but we still do a lot of shaming of people. Like, there's something on The Bachelorette that's popping all over social media, which I now have time to look at because it's part of my job so we have a very ambivalent relationship about sexuality and yes people are still very uptight about it and i'll tell you how i know when i go through the world i assume that people are somewhat comfortable with sexuality because i am but when i talk to people and i tell them what my book is about they start giggling and they, they start making kind of sort of either jokes or they kind of make comments. Even in my own psychology department, when I was doing my Ph.D., when I went back to school at 50 to study neuroscience, one of my colleagues saw me outside the building and yelled across the way, hey, you sex maniac. And I don't think that he was trying to shame me, but I think people get so uncomfortable. And if you look at it in the psychology department, ostensibly where we're supposed to be, you know, kind of experts on human behavior and all of that, that people giggle, and and I'm talking about the faculty members. I think the graduate students were better about it. So I think people are deeply uncomfortable, almost as uncomfortable talking about sex as they are about money, or maybe they're more uncomfortable talking about sex, I'm not sure.
0: Well, I like this message of, because you're kind of giving people permission, and with some research to back it up, to enjoy yourself. Just enjoy yourself.
2: The the cascade of the good kinds of neurotransmitters and peptides through the best antidepressant is social joy in relationships. Now, sex is a window into connection for people, for some people, but it's just not really about sex. It's about the core emotional systems and how we need to be mindful of operating them so that we we live better. We're nicer people to each other. You know, people who pay attention to their bodies and feel empathy are not going to be as cruel to other people. You know, it's really about feeling nature, feeling our our reactions to things can be very helpful and very informative.
0: So, indulging in pleasure is good, and although that seems obvious, we often don't act that way. Dr. Nan Wise has been my guest. She's a psychotherapist and author of the book, Why Good Sex Matters. There's a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks for coming on and talking about this, Nan.
2: My pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. You've asked some very interesting questions that make me think, which is fun. I like to think.
0: If you want to create a secure password, make it long. One of the best ways to do that is to string several words together to make a phrase. For example, bottle baseball shark trophy. Why is it good? Well. It's easy to remember Bottle Baseball Shark Trophy, but it's also hard to hack. An 11-character password will take three days at a 1,000 guesses per second to hack. The same system will take 550 years to crack Bottle Baseball Shark Trophy, which is 25 characters. Using symbols and numbers may make your password a little more secure, but not much. Length is what counts. And that is something you should know. We have had several very kind and complimentary reviews about this podcast posted on Apple Podcasts lately, and you're free to add yours to the list. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.